And joining us now is Brian Katoulis, who's a Senior Fellow and Vice President of Policy at the Middle East Institute. He was formerly a Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focused on U.S. national security policy in the Middle East and South Asia. He lived and worked in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Egypt, and was a Fulbright Scholar in Amman, Jordan, where he conducted research on the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. An Arabic speaker, he's the co-author of The Prosperity Agenda. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brian Katoulis. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Brian. And Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend their ceasefire for two more days past Monday, according to the Qatari government, who've been actively brokering these deals. Um, and uh, is there a possibility that it could continue on, even despite the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu has made it clear that he will resume operations with, quote, the full force as soon as the current deal expires? But as they buy more I, days and get more people out. Well, how do you see this going forward? I, th- I, I think they could get um, some more hostages out in a few more days of a ceasefire, but I think the long-term prospects don't look uh, optimistic. Uh, and it's not just because of Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel, but also if you look at the positions of groups like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Um, What I think we may be seeing is a temporary respite because you basically have two different actors, uh, the Israeli government and then the Hamas group, along with some of its partners in Gaza, who are fundamentally at odds. And um, as devastating as the war has been and uh, how uh, many of us want to see this come to an end, unfortunately, the parties to the conflict have expressed positions that don't seem like they're going to be dealt with in a diplomatic forum and uh, looks quite likely will will uh, go back to some form of conflict and violence, unfortunately. So, so far, 58 hostages have been released, including 39 Israelis. How, how many more do you think? I mean, I don't see the Hamas or whoever, Islamic Jihad, releasing any Israeli soldiers, many of whom are women who were captured on the border. Yeah, so at the very least, if we get two more days, we may get a couple more dozen uh, hostages out. Um, There's a key question here in Washington everybody's focused on is also the Americans. There's any number of an additional eight to ten. It's it's unclear still to this day, uh, and and some of this information is kept pretty close to the vest. So we got uh, an Israeli-American little girl, four-year-old out um, over this past uh, few days. Um, but but it, it really is sort of a, a question of, I think, almost unfortunately a matter of time that Israel will, will resume some of the strikes and that there's some elements of Hamas uh, and the militant wings um, there that have been firing rockets into Israel. That's been paused. I, I unfortunately see that the structure of the situation is just it's still pretty bad because there's uh, we're, we're trying to get sort of the bare minimum here from a group like Hamas and, and some of its partners to get children released, to get uh, elderly and others. And um, Netanyahu in Israel is facing a lot of pressure from his public to continue these releases. But we may be um, coming to, to an end here. I, I hope not. I hope that there's a pathway to some sort of conflict resolution and more durable ceasefire, but it just looks like the forces that are arrayed on the ground there and the incentives um, 
but will lead them back to some form of uh, additional conflict that I think will be quite deadly, especially for those who've moved to southern, the southern part of the Gaza Strip. But Brian Katulis, what's in it for Hamas? I mean, what are they getting out of this? If this Israel is getting more hostages released and then they're going to come back and pound the hell out of the place, I don't see what's in it for Hamas. Well, uh, in the short run, they're getting much-needed fuel and supplies into the people of Gaza who have been subjected to a siege um, that has made like life difficult uh, for them. So uh, that's one. Another thing, you know, and this is, sounds quite perverse, but I think it's true, is that Hamas, uh, by drawing this out, continues to uh, get its brand in the media attention, global media attention. So uh, in a real sense across the region, and I was just in, in the Middle East uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, Hamas has shifted the narrative. And it, it has, uh, I think, in, at the popular level with some folks, um, it has uh, gained uh, in its stature, unfortunately, despite its atrocious deeds against innocent uh, civilians. Um, so another thing that Hamas gets in all of this, in drawing this all out, uh, perhaps is a degree of some protection for some of their leaders that aren't in Gaza, because they have a leadership that's around the region. Israel has threatened to go after them as well. Um, so right now, and this is why I'm not optimistic, is that if you look at the stated positions of uh, Israel and then the Hamas leadership, they're, they're so at odds. And it's, it's hard to imagine that if we're trying to get to just the bare minimum of releases um, of, of innocent civilians uh, in exchange for uh, not only a, firing, a, a pause in the, in the uh, attacks, but also some humanitarian aid. It's, it's really hard to imagine how these, these two different forces can actually um, find diploma, a diplomatic resolution to, 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 to the current conflict. So as Hamas's credibility and, and importance, in, in diplomatically speaking, in the Middle East is, is on the rise, I imagine the U.S.'s credibility and diplomatic influence is, is on the wane, isn't it? I mean... It, it's going to be difficult for us to be an honest broker, isn't it, in the future? Um, well, um, so on, what I heard on recent trips to the region was that America uh, was seen as backing um, Israel's military campaign that has uh, been quite deadly for innocent Palestinians, especially children. So that that's created a very, uh, I think, dark cloud that I think would rival the image problems America had during the 2003 Iraq war and its aftermath. And then certain episodes uh, after 2011, when there were various uh, Arab uprisings and civil wars across the region, and that the Obama administration wasn't viewed in a very positive light in terms of how it reacted. Uh, I also think it rivals some of the things that President Trump did um, when he instituted a ban of Muslim visitors to the United States. So there's, there's definitely an image problem at the popular level in many parts of the Middle East. Um, I think the leadership in some of the countries is quite different because the leadership of many of the Arab partners that uh, America has, although they forged different relationships with Russia and China in recent years, they still look to the United States as being a, a key guarantor of their own security, right? So um, they don't have many good options, and America is seen as the best of a range of options they have. 
And here I'm talking about countries like Jordan or Saudi Arabia or Egypt. So even though there's at a popular level, I think, discontent, it may not be anything new um, uh, about America in, in much of the Arab world. I think at the leadership level, there's there's just, you know, no other actor, not 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 anyone in Europe, not not Putin in Russia, not the Chinese have really been playing as active a role as, as the United States in trying to get to at least a temporary ceasefire. Here. But, Brian, when you're talking about the security of Egypt, Saudi Arabia and Jordan, it's security for the leadership against its own people, isn't it? And particularly in Jordan, where you've got a massive Palestinian population. I think it's more Palestinians than there are Jordanians. Uh, and then Egypt, uh, it would seem that the pressure on that border is... I mean, I can't see Egypt in any way accepting Gaza. In other words, having the, having the Gazans you know, suddenly dumped on Egypt. Wouldn't that create massive problems for them? So... I'm just wondering the extent to which U.S. influence may U.S. may have a lot of influence with the governments, but aren't the governments looking over their shoulder at their own people? Yes, for sure they are, and I think they're also. That's why many of these governments from the get-go have called for immediate ceasefire. Which um, before this uh, this pause in fighting, the U.S. wasn't there. You know, the, uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Joe Biden articulated a position that was basically. Um, centered on Israel's right of self-defense, and they also backed the stated goal of trying to eliminate Hamas. Much of the Arab countries, I think uh, their leaderships, but at the popular level, wanted to see a ceasefire. Now, I think the interesting thing to watch here is that, you know, trying to anticipate how this all ends while we're stuck in the middle of a very volatile conflict and tensions not only in Gaza, but then you also see uh, uptick in incidents in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, the Houthis in Yemen. Um, what's interesting to start to think about is where does this all lead? And my impression is that here in Washington, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, also in Ramallah, there's not a clear conception of where this all goes, right? Even when the ceasefire ends, um, and hopefully it ends to something that's more, much more durable and a diplomatic solution. Again, I find it hard to see the pathway to that. But uh, if there's more conflict, all of this should actually be then uh, connected to some sort of vision of where this all ends. And quite clearly, um, Israel and the United States aren't going to be the ones that are doing the reconstruction of Gaza. Um, uh, Arab partners, I think, are going to be expected to with that bill and to offer a lot of that support. So that's why I think it's important, even with this gap between governments and their people in the region, for the United States to work with a lot of these governments to, to plan not only not only to deal with the current crisis, but to plan for the future. But Netanyahu's more or less indicated that he, he may want to occupy Gaza. I mean, maybe he's occupying rubble, but the question is, what happens to those people? Yeah, you can't no, dump them the on Egypt. That, I mean, if that's his end game, isn't, that's not going to work, is it? Exactly, and that's that's the point of having a much tougher discussion about the end game, and not just with Netanyahu. If you look at his government, this um, a government that he put together, there's multiple voices on this question of what this is, is all driving towards. I've been in briefings uh, from Israel Defense Force uh, commanders personally who say that there's no way we're going to occupy. Uh, Gaza, which was completely at odds the very day that the prime minister of the country was saying this. So I don't think they have a clear game plan. And that's worrisome, because if you think about some of the mistakes 
the United States itself made in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, some of the biggest errors we made day to day, month to month, and the things that prolonged wars and conflict was not actually having a clear vision of the end state. And that's certainly the case, I think, uh, when you look at not just Netanyahu, but the leadership, collective leadership of Israel right now, they still don't have a clear answer to the question of how does this all end. So part of the agreement, from what I understand, is in terms of this truce and this uh, prisoner exchange, is that Israel will not fire any of its overheads, its uh, drones, etc., is that still happening? Is that because that would presumably be advantageous to Hamas? I'm not certain about that particular aspect of of, of the deal, right? I think uh, the thrust of the discussions have been about how to get more humanitarian aid into the uh, southern part of the Gaza Strip, and um, I'm about to head into another briefing where. We hear, we're going to hear more detail on it, but I, on the on the drone overflights and the aerial overflights, I'm not certain um, of of those particular aspects right now. And a lot of this, some of the things that come out in the media, particularly when it comes to hostage negotiations, but anything related to it, there's often information that's slightly off because those who are actually conducting the negotiations uh, often just do not talk about you know the nature of those. And then um, that, that's why I think it's difficult to really say. But what's what's happening day to day? There's also been reports of, even even in the context of the ceasefires, uh, Israel defense forces firing on certain people who were not combatants. So it's you know it's, there's never I think 100 uh, percent foolproof uh, ceasefire in cases like this. But on on that specific question, I don't think there's much clarity there. So the U.S. De- defense minister Lloyd Austin has been talking to his Israeli counterpart, apparently trying to restrain the IDF from escalating their exchanges with Hezbollah on the northern border. What's going on there? Is there any concern? Because I know Zarif, the former Iranian negotiator, suggested that Israel or Netanyahu wants to drag the U.S. into a war with Iran and that one of the reasons Iran is restraining Hezbollah is that they don't want to take the bait. Do you, do you buy into any of that? Well, I think um, the U.S., before any conversations the Secretary of Defense had, and it's been ongoing, uh, the U.S. sent uh, additional forces to the region, including two aircraft carriers. And I, I wouldn't put much stock in what the former foreign minister of Iran has to say about this, because uh, anything that comes from those circles tends to be uh, propaganda um, aimed at trying to influence and shape the debate here and in other places as well. And I think the simple fact of the matter is that um, many of Iran's partners across the region, Hezbollah, the Houthis, uh, certain groups in Iraq, they've actually stepped up their attacks against the United States, causing the United States to um, uh, respond with more targeted strikes. So I, I would be surprised um, it, uh, the reason why someone like Javed Zarif is not a prime reference for me on Israel's national security is that I don't think he really is part of those discussions. My my sense is that the Israelis themselves do not want to see a widening conflict across the region because they already have their hands full in simply trying to get some of their hostages home and then trying to deal with an immediate threat from Hamas, which, you know, though though that's been quelled for a few days with the ceasefire, I think the last thing they want to see right now is this opening up to other fronts because they're, the, the Israeli 
uh, uh, military is already strained uh, by this operation in Gaza, and they, they don't need the the additional strain of other fronts opening up. So then, what is restraining Hezbollah? I mean, uh, why why aren't think, they joining in? That, yeah, I think they they re- they have the vivid memories of how much um, uh, the 2006 war caused so much damage uh, inside of Lebanon, and I think they they also look out over the horizon and they see a U.S. aircraft carrier, where I don't know if you re- repeatedly but Joe Biden and others said one word, which was "don't," and that was a warning to groups like Hezbollah as well as Iran to not expand this conflict across the region. And I think a key part of it is um, the balance of deterrence that Israel imposed through its actions now backed up with U.S. support uh, to to try to deal with Hezbollah and other uh, Iranian partners. I think it's working so far, but this is what makes things everything so dangerous and tenuous is that at a moment's notice, uh, an errant missile or rocket could actually shift the balance and, and cause a wider a wider conflict to erupt. So just in closing then, uh, Brian Cotillis, Israel's, uh, or at least Netanyahu's and the military's and the IDF's determination, which they've expressed, is to destroy and eliminate Hamas, which I guess is, means killing 30,000 of their fighters. Is that going to happen? It seems unlikely to me. Um, if it does, and you do the math, and they, they've stated publicly that uh, Israel has stated that they've killed about 3,000-plus Hamas fighters. It's hard to verify this as an independent uh, analyst outside. A uh, month and a half into this, if you do the math, that you're talking about a very deadly war for innocent Palestinians as well as uh, the Hamas fighters. I think the, the, the bigger question, you know, and we face this, the United States and some of its partners in the fight against the Islamic State, the bigger question is, is linked to not only eliminating commanders and people who were involved in the initial attack, but then what are the conditions that uh, all of these actions, the military actions, the humanitarian aid, the diplomacy, what is this all driving towards? Um, because uh, if there's not an answer to that question, then you could be looking at a very prolonged conflict that is uh, disastrous from a humanitarian standpoint, from a civilian protection standpoint. It already has been in the, in the first month and a half. It could only get worse. So my hope is, and though I was, I'm pessimistic that the ceasefire will be extended, my hope is that the foothold of these, uh, that's been gained by these conversations to bring home hostages, to let get in more humanitarian aid, that, that there could be some hope for a diplomatic resolution. I, I just wouldn't bet a lot of money on it right now because of the stated positions of the Israeli government, as well as what Hamas says it wants as its end state. It's, it's hard to mediate uh, between two different forces that simply want to obliterate each other. Well, Brian Cotillis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great. Thanks for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Brian Katulis, who's a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute. He was formerly a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focused on U.S. national security policy in the Middle East and South Asia. He lived and worked in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Egypt and was a Fulbright scholar in Amman, Jordan, where he conducted research on the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. An Arabic speaker, he's the co-author of The Prosperity Agenda.